This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. What is Chalkboard Chat? It's an MPB education podcast. It's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers, students, parents, guardians, and everyday people on various topics. It's learning something new with every publication. Chalkboard Chat. Find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's a show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. I am your host, Marshall Ramsey, editor-at-large and editorial cartoonist with Mississippi Today. You know this, I know this, Mississippi's a land of storytellers. How we get our stories, of course, has changed over the years. And, you know, it used to be that word that we heard on the front porch, that news, that gossip. And then it became a newspaper thrown in the driveway. And then we had radio and television And that became the center of our world. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, the Internet, of course, changed how we got our information. And then in 2007, the iPhone put all that information into the palm of our hands. And frankly, the world has not been the same since. When people think of the media, they think of many different things. Trust me, post something on Facebook about the media and you're going to get all kinds of answers. But at the end of the day, our democracy depends on an informed public. Even the Founding Fathers realized the importance of a free press. Thomas Jefferson said it boldly when he proclaimed, Our liberty depends on the freedom of the press, and that cannot be limited without being lost. So our next two guests today are going to be helping us explore the changing world and how we get those stories. Margaret Sullivan is the author of the new memoir, Newsroom Confidential. She's a former media columnist for The Washington Post and the first woman and the fifth public editor for The New York Times. She's going to be joining us to talk about the role that news plays in a changing uh, journalism landscape and, of course, in our democracy. And Dr. Andrea Hickerson will be joining us, too. She's the dean of journalism at Ole Miss, and she'll be sharing a little bit about her research in deep fakes and how journalism schools are now preparing journalists for the future. And speaking of Margaret Sullivan, I will say that she will be here on Thursday in Mississippi, in Jackson, and she'll be having a conversation with my cohort, the Mississippi Today editor-in-chief, Adam Ganeshow. Uh, That's a partnership with the American Journalism Project, the Mississippi Press Association, and the Mississippi Humanities Council. We're going to be putting this on. That'll be, like I said, November 17th, Thursday at 6 p.m. It's free. I like free. Free is a good thing. Uh, it'll now be at the Old Capitol Museum. Well, since she's uh, very busy and has a busy schedule, and I just really appreciate her taking the time to talk to us today, we'll just go ahead and jump in and go ahead and bring on the air Margaret Sullivan with the, uh, well, with the new book. And I can't wait to hear a little bit more about it. Margaret, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks very much for having me, Marshall. And I'm excited to be in Jackson this week. Um, it'll be my first trip, not my first trip to Mississippi, but my first time in Jackson. So I'm excited to come and meet some people and, and talk about the press and uh, the challenges that we face. I think it's going to be a fantastic conversation. And I would be um, a derelict in my duties as a Mississippian not to ask you, where was the uh, last time you came to Mississippi? Where was that at? Oh, well, I came to uh, I came to Ole Miss because my former New York Times colleague, Greg Brock, was teaching there. And he brought me down to speak to his journalism class. And strangely enough, while I was there, I met Adam Ganeshaw, uh, and and now in my second trip to, to Mississippi, he's going to be the one interviewing me at this event on Thursday evening. So uh, it's kind of full circle, um, and it's, uh, you know, I had a really fun time uh, when I visited Ole Miss and went uh, with Greg's 
uh, guidance to Oxford and um, did a lot of fun stuff. So uh, I have a very positive recollection. If you don't eat well in Oxford, you have done something wrong. There's a lot of <laughs> no, great... I ate very well. Yeah, there's a lot of great f- food well. there. And, you know, I think your conversation with Adam is going to be great. Um, he edits me every day, so I will say he's kind of tough, so I, I'm warning you. <laughs> I'm, not looking for a, uh, I'm not looking for an easy time, just uh, just so it's a good conversation. I, I will say this, and you've, you've had a story career, and we're going to break into it in just a second. Um, you've had a lot of people, different, different people editing you, but when you came back to the Washington Post and actually had somebody editing your columns, that had to be so weird. Because, I mean, I had the same editor for 15 years, and then I went through a series of them. It's just really hard to break in a new editor, isn't it? Yes, it, you know, and I've had a couple different ones. Um, and it's funny because as when I was in Buffalo, uh, I became the top editor of the paper. And when you're the top editor of the paper, really nobody edits you unless you say to someone who you trust, hey, would you take a look at what I've written here, maybe an editor's column or something, and they do. But they realize the whole time that they can't really force anything on you. And that was very different. Uh, you know, I mean, I had wonderful editors uh, at the New York Times and the Washington Post, but uh, I never again was in that position where I didn't really have to listen to what the editor said. And, uh, and, and But my most recent editor at the Post was a woman named Amy Argetsinger, and she was such a skilled editor, such a, a great wordsmith that I always felt that my columns were greatly improved after she made suggestions. Yeah, you're going to hear a big amen from the choir here, because that's one thing that I think I've realized with age is that you're you're only as good as your editor in some sense. And, and, and I know, right. I, you know, I was very lucky to have a fantastic one for so long, and I have a great one now with Adam's Great. All right, enough of all that. Let's break into the new book. And congratulations, by the way. It's a fantastic book. I, I, Thank you. You know, I kind of went into it because I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, um, Let's hear what she has to say. And I will say this, that you and David Carr were are by far my two favorite media critics. And I've, you, were uh, kind of, you were kind of my t- go-to folks during the last, as the wheels seemed to come off the business. And I really have enjoyed your work over the years. Well, thank you for that. You know, I modeled my column at the Washington Post after David Carr's column. And David Carr, as people may or may not know, was the media columnist at the New York Times. And he he had a very untimely death. I mean, he was only 58 years old. He had a sudden death actually in the newsroom at the Times. And so when I was getting ready to come to the Washington Post, it was actually my pitch to the editor there, um, you know, let me try to do for the Post what what David Carr was doing at the New York Times. And Marty Barron uh, accepted that idea. And uh, I did my best, although I will say that I always was uh, very convinced that I wasn't living up to David's legacy, but I, you know, I, I, I think I, I did pretty well. But he was a once in a generation talent, so um, I'm happy to be just mentioned in the same sentence. Well, and deservedly so. And I, I will say this: I, I loved the book because I, you know, everybody thinks about when they get into this business what inspired them, you know, and. I was a little bit behind you in my career, but I mean, Watergate and Jimmy Carter were two things that inspired me because I always loved seeing the editorial cartoons of Jimmy Carter with big teeth, you know, whether it's Herblock, right. Herblock just absolutely tore Nixon up and, and was fantastic. Uh-huh. And then you would see like McNally and you'd see, you know, uh, Baldy at, at the Atlanta Constitution where I was growing up. Watergate played a big role in you getting into journalism, didn't it? It did. I mean, I was really just a young teenager, barely a teenager, when the Watergate hearings were on television. But they riveted the country, and they certainly riveted my my family. And um, I knew that that whole thing had 
somewhat, to some extent, begun with the reporting of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein at the Washington Post. And I remember having this conversation with my brother, David, who was uh, my eldest brother. He was home from college. And, you know, as a great brother, he said to me, what do you think, you know, you at the same time that this Watergate stuff was happening? And he said, you know, what do you think you might like to do someday? And I said, well, I really didn't know. I told him what I thought I was good at and what I was interested in. And it was a moment sort of like the moment in the film, The Graduate, where that word plastics is uttered. And in, and in this case, my brother David, you know, said to me, actually pointed at me and said, journalism. And I honestly didn't quite know what that meant. But pretty soon I joined the school paper at my high school and I ended up being the editor of the paper. And I guess the rest is history. I really love the business and I've had such um, an interesting, not always fun, but certainly very, very interesting career. And I feel so grateful to have been able to do it. One thing we've, we firmly believe here in Mississippi is that local news matters. And, you know, you were interning at the Niagara Gazette right, yes. a, right about the time the Love Canal debacle happened. I mean, exactly. you talk about, so here you were at a quote-unquote small paper, but literally had very the national small. story going on That's there. Right. Tell us, that had to be a very formative moment for you. Well, in that case, I literally was a teenager, um, and, you know, I was brought over to the Niagara Gazette, you know, just as an intern, and I was writing feature stories. But the Love Canal disaster, the worst environmental disaster that the country had faced uh, up until that point, began uh, in earnest. I mean, it had been going on for a while. And um, the, the, the city was declared a national disaster area, and it was all hands on deck at the tiny paper, Gannett paper. And uh, the editors decided to send me out and do some Love Canal stories, which I, I did to the best of my ability. And uh, it really whet my appetite for the big story. And one of the things I remember so well is that the big paper in the region was the Buffalo Evening News. And um, they were beating us all the time on, on stories. And I was, you know, very upset and angry about that. And so, you know, it is kind of interesting in a way that that's the paper that I ended up going to next and ultimately became the top editor of. So it kind of, uh, it kind of came full circle. That was an amazing rise because a lot of times to, to rise through the ranks at a newspaper, you had to bounce around to different papers to get new jobs and so forth. And you went from intern to being the, the head editor, which was an incre- incredible rise. I also am proud that I was the first woman to be the top editor of the paper. And, um, you know, I mean, it took a long time. uh, And there were obviously reasons that I stayed in Buffalo, family reasons. Um, You know, my my dad, my mom had died and my dad became single. And then, you know, I got married and had little kids. There were lots of reasons. But, um, you know, it was, I think I did every job in that newsroom. Uh, I was a reporter of various stripes, and I was an assistant city editor and a features editor. So I, you know, and all of that helped me an awful lot when I got to the New York Times because I felt like, okay, well, this is a much bigger paper and it's a much bigger stage. But I really felt like I had had so much experience and incredible experience in Buffalo that I really didn't feel very daunted by it. I love um, the story about you talk about mentorship and mentors and Foster Spencer was a big part of your career. And, and tell yeah. us a little bit about him because he was a, I loved him Such because I was character. like, I think I worked for him. You know, I didn't. Right. But it's like there were those old newspaper guys that you ran yep. into that. I mean, he was like to a T. Right. He you know, he would he was the kind of old style newspaper editor who would 
you know, he had expressions for everything. For example, if there was a headline that went across the, the front page, you know, in a horizontal way across the front page, he would, and he had a New England accent, he would call that a the screamer, but of course he pronounced it screama. And so uh, the time I wrote my first big story and he yelled across the newsroom, Sully, you got your first screama. And, uh, you know, and it was always that kind of thing with Foster. He had a character that he would talk about, this imaginary character called Sweeney. And Sweeney was the sort of prototypical reader out there. And Foster was concerned that we were putting the paper out for Sweeney and serving Sweeney's best interests. And so maybe it sounds kind of hokey, but he had the public interest at heart, and, uh, and that made him a great newspaper man. I love that. I mean, it's like when we do the show, we think of Sweeney, too, in a sense of, like, who's listening? What would they be interested in and so forth? And Sweeney, he had a little bit different idea of Sweeney than maybe you did, or maybe Sweeney's changed now a little bit. Well, yeah. right. I mean, I think that Sweeney at that time was kind of a, you know, a, maybe Irish Catholic guy in South Buffalo, blue collar, all of that sort of thing. And now I think that, you know, our notion of who the who the readership is or who the audience and the news consumer or the citizen is has to be broadened uh, to think about people of color, women, you know, people with different um, different backgrounds. And so while that seemed to serve the purpose at the time, I think that we have to think um, about all of our readership and all of the communities that we serve. Um, you know, not that Foster didn't do that, because I think he did, but it was a sort of simplistic idea right. of who of who the readership is, and I think we have to be a little broader in our in our aims these days. Well, I mean, and kudos to you, because I think, it, you know, your way of addressing that was making sure that the newsroom reflected the community that you were serving, and I thought that was, you know, that's something we've tried to do here in Jackson, too, and so it's a, it's an important part of news. Right, right. I really was proud that I was able to diversify the newsroom. And it meant, you know, doing a different kind of hiring, you know, that you had to look at potential candidates and say, you know, can they do the job? Not necessarily do they have the same background that they always that we always hired from. And I was, you know, really proud that I hired some talented people who have either stayed at the paper or gone on to do great things. And one of them, I'll add this because it's a particular point of pride. I, uh, there was a woman, Lisa Wilson, who was on the sports staff, and I ultimately uh, named her to be sports editor. So strange enough that she was a woman sports editor, but she also was a black woman and uh, one of the very, very few in the country and did a fantastic job. So I was particularly proud of that one. Isn't it amazing you go through that natural transition of looking for mentors, and then one day you wake up and you're a mentor yourself? Yes. Almost overnight. Well, you know, it's sort of like you remember being the the youngest person in the room or the kid in the <laughs> yeah. room, and then all of a sudden you're the elder statesman. When did that happen? Exactly. You're the guy in yeah. the corner telling all the stories about the old days. Yeah, I've become That's that right. guy. Yeah, definitely. That's right. We're talking with Margaret Sullivan. The fantastic new book is Newsroom Confidential. It's your it's your second book, and you're you know you kind of expanded a little bit on the first book was about obviously the challenges of democracy and, and news coverage to it and everything else, and you've kind of touched on that. And we're we're going to get to that in just a second. I just wanted to bring up you coming in as a public editor at the New York Times, and I, people might under, misunderstand what a public editor is because you don't get invited to go out for drinks with the with the rest of the crew. You were kind of isolated and on your own island when you were there. 
That's right. It's, you know, the job is, which, you know, has since been discontinued, but was set up to be almost like internal affairs in the police department. Like you are there as an internal watchdog, but basically as a reader representative, an ombudsman, so that readers or, or, you know, people outside the paper would complain about what they saw as something wrong and you would go and investigate it. And then you would report on it right in the pages of the Times or on the website of the Times. And I used to write uh, very frequent blog posts. So almost everything that, you know, captured my interest or that seemed to be in the conversation that day, I would try to do it in real time. And and I use social media a lot. So um, but, you know, you're absolutely right. Being an internal critic is not a way to get invited to parties. And I used to say um, when I got there, it's a good thing I have a lot of good friends because I'm probably not going to make any new ones here. But the truth is I did make good friends there. And, and, it, and, and you know, Greg Brock, uh, who was an editor at the Times, has proved to be one of them, and he's a Mississippi guy. Yeah, and you also fell in love with New York City, too, at that time, didn't you? Absolutely. I mean, of course, I had been, because I was from Buffalo, I had been to New York many, many times, but... When I began to live there, I really felt like uh, this was uh, feeding my soul. You know, this was a kind of spiritual home for me. And so when I went to the Washington Post, I did move to Washington, but I moved back to New York City, and that's where I live now. I just feel like, to me, it's uh, it's the place that makes my heart go pitter-pat. I remember one time I was sitting in the doctor's waiting room and I was wearing this. Is, I used to work for the Clarion Ledger newspaper and before I came to went to Mississippi today and here at MPB. But I was sitting in the, and I had my little logo shirt on and somebody said something rather profane about where I worked. I realized at that point, hmm, maybe the media is not super popular. There has been a huge decline with the media and obviously it, people's opinion of it over the last few years. Do you think that's something that can be changed and what do you think is driving it? So, you know, there's been a huge decline in trust in all of the American institutions, whether it's education or the military or police or whoever it is. So the media is not alone in that. Yeah. But I think one of the things that's driven down the trust level in the media is the perception that the media is biased. And, of course, people have different points of view on what that bias looks like. But, you know, we didn't used to have cable news, and cable news is so much it you know tends to drive us more into our, our into our partisan corners. Um, we didn't have Fox News, and Fox News I think is particularly guilty of that. So you know how can we regain that trust? I think that by shoring up local news, which is more trusted, by being more transparent with our audiences about how we do the work we do, not not sort of hiding behind we're all powerful and we'll just give it to you and you have to accept it. Um, and, you know, I think that the whole country could use some education in what I guess could be called media literacy or news literacy so that all this misinformation that's coming at us that erodes trust can be seen for what it is and that we know solid, good journalism from the stuff that's just a bunch of garbage that gets shared on social media and all of that erodes trust. So I don't think there can be one sort of silver bullet answer but there's a lot of ways we can go at it, and, and we have to because, as you said, it's, it's an absolute you know, foundation of the way our country has to function. We need it. 
it's almost like, you know, of course, everybody's chasing clicks, whatever, you know, but it's almost like it's easier to tickle the amygdala as opposed to engage the frontal cortex. You know, it's like it's more powerful to outrage people, you know, and there seems to be an awful lot of that going on. That's right. And even though people will say, oh, I wish it was more just the facts and I wish it was more about substance, we also know that, you know, the thing that gets attention is the outrageous stuff and is the more opinionated. So, you know, you can say, please give me just the facts, but then when you actually go to read something, oh, you know, you kind of want your own point of view um, mirrored back to you. So, um, but I think we can, you know, good journalists can make the substantial stuff interesting and engaging, and when that's our responsibility, and we must do it. Yeah, I can't be preaching too much because I'm an editorial cartoonist. So anyway, so I'll sit down and shut up now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting. The guest on that's going to be on after you is the new dean of journalism at Ole Miss, uh, Dr. Uh, Andrea Hickerson. And I really I met her a couple of weeks ago, and just fantastic. But she did a lot of research on deep deep fakes. And the thing is, now there is things that can look like the news, it can sound like the news. And it can even uh, make you think it's the news, but it's just propaganda. And it's really tough. Like you said, on the education front, we really have to learn how to be able to tell the difference. It's gotten harder and harder. And I think we saw what happened during the 2016 campaign, yeah. um, particularly on Facebook. You know, it, and I mean, I've, I'm guilty, too. I have occasionally shared things that turned out to be untrue. And boy, you cannot put that genie back in the bottle once it's out there. So I think we all have to be extremely careful and think twice, you know, and do a little bit of uh, is this story too good to be true and kind of compare and contrast a little bit so that we know that what we're sending around is actually legit. I would say that being the media critic at The Washington Post in the middle of the Trump administration had to be like riding a bull. It was pretty tough. It really was. And I was, you know, I was I was very involved in it. There was a lot of online harassment. Um, it's a, it's a vicious, you know, the social media world and the, just even people just calling or emailing. I got death threats, um, for, and like really misogynistic, nasty stuff for, for no reason. I mean, it wasn't as if I was writing about anything that had to do with being a woman or gender, but the things that would come at me would be just brutal. And it did take a toll, I have to say. Um, and you know, I was writing a couple books at the same time, so I'm taking a little breather right now. Although I'm I'm happy to be going around talking about my book, but after that, my plan is to write a detective novel and to do some teaching. Oh, how much fun would that be? And of course, That'll you're you're also coming here, and you'll be here Thursday night, and it'll be yes. at the old Capitol. And uh, I'm really excited. Like I said, I can't wait to meet you. That's going to be a lot of fun. And also, to Dean Bacay came through here about a week ago, so I'll get to meet him and then you. So that'll be fun oh, too. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. I love it. Yeah, it was really funny because I think you one point right in your book about him getting upset or angry or something. And he's so soft spoken when you listen to him. I was just sitting there looking at him, trying to imagine him getting mad. And I was like, I'm kind of glad he's not getting mad at me. Right. He, he 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 is a very gregarious, very sunny personality. Yeah. But, you know, people also know that he has a bit of a temper at times. In the news business, I'm shocked. I have never known yes, anybody know. in our How business. Could that happen? How well, could that happen? Well, this is absolutely delightful. Like I said, you've decided to make that next transition and you've, you're going to be working on the book. That sounds like a lot of fun. And where are you going to be teaching at? I'm going to be teaching at Duke. Um, so that'll be great. That starts in January. And, and, uh, you know, as I say, I'll just tell you a quick thing about this, uh, detective novel I'm working on. The the heroine of it is a laid off local newspaper reporter who decides to turn her investigative skills to solving crimes. 
Wow. Yeah, it should be fun. That'll give hope for a lot of my friends who've been laid off. They can all become PIs and everything. I can't wait. That'll be fun to read that. And it'll be fun for you to write it, too. Well, thank you so much for carving out a little bit of your time today to be able to talk to us. This has been great. My pleasure. On with us, I guess you could technically say, it's Dr. Andrea Hickerson. She's the Dean of Journalism at Ole Miss, who is, she's an accomplished researcher, a very prolific researcher and scholar. Uh, she also has experience studying deep fakes and issues facing international journalism as well. Dr. Hickerson, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be on. Man, I'm glad to, uh, glad to talk to you again. I got to meet you briefly, I guess it was a week ago. I've lost total track of time about it. COVID has totally messed with my whole internal calendar, but... Love sitting down and talk to you. And the whole area of what you've, you know, researched throughout your academic career is fascinating and is so timely. Uh, and also, too, you know, I got to talk to Mar- Margaret Sullivan. Now I get to talk to you. So it's been a good day. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit because, I mean, one of the things Margaret Sullivan, Sullivan was talking about was about how sometimes, you know, it's hard to tell what's news and what's not news. Um, and now that seems like it's getting harder and harder and harder. And you've done an awful lot of research on that. What what problems do you think that deep fakes or basically creating content that doesn't look real is going to be in the future for journalism? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think uh, Margaret brought up some of the things that have changed over time, like 24-hour cable news and then social media, the sense that news is always breaking and it's always timely and we always need to say something about it. Yeah, there's a huge, um, no, a huge news hole to fill too. Exactly, right? And so you, you just want to fill it with something that's going to get a lot of eyeballs because that's what the business demands. Um, but something like deep fakes, which are um, artificially generated videos, so a really good deep fake, you shouldn't be able to tell that it's been altered or edited, and this could either be in the video or in the audio part of it. Um, and I think in my research with that, one of the biggest problems to catching deep fakes is no one wants to take responsibility for catching a deep fake. Yeah. Um, whether they don't think it's their responsibility or they're worried about getting it wrong. And that's really scary. So who does that rely on? Who gets to figure out whether or not that's false or not? Well, you know, I think a big part of it would be verification, right? And, and you know, we're seeing what's going on with Twitter the last week or so as it implodes. And I mean, literally, I mean, literally, Jesus Christ got verified this week. So apparently, they're, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just like, okay, well, the second coming's come. We're in trouble, you know? And it's like, a, but I mean... You, you know, if you're not going to be able to trust with what you're seeing or how that actually helps, I guess, people that are trying to push propaganda and people are trying to push, uh, you know, some sinister, I don't know, some sinister agenda. It does. And, and that's kind of, I mean, you could look at it several different ways. As one of that, this is bad for journalism because there's so much bad news out there. But you could see if journalists are really doing a good job of verification, what it does is it kind of helps arguably, um, restore the credibility of journalism because we need it because individuals don't have time to go verify every piece of information on their own. So just realistically, we need some convenient group of people that we can look to to say, hey, I've checked this out and this is what's really accurate here. So you'd say that in this era of cutting that we probably need to start beefing up fact checkers and starting to get that part of the, the news organizations built up. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know Margaret just mentioned the idea of media literacy, that we teach people how to listen to news or how to watch news or questions to ask. And and those are really interesting, but I'm, I'm a little skeptical of those because what they do is they put a lot of the emphasis back on the audience member. And again, it kind of like defeats the purpose of having someone sort the news for you, right? If And it's just not realistic that we're going to go through an article and say, okay, what sources were quoted? Where did they get their information from? 
um, all of those types of things. And so I, I like to approach it more in terms of media ethics, right? How do you feel about sharing that information? Who does it affect? What's the impact of it? And I feel like that, maybe I'm optimistic, might create more of a kind of a community narrative around things and just put less of that burden on an individual who's not doing their homework. Yeah, that's 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 really the tough part. I, I was looking on YouTube and I watch a lot of videos while I draw. And there are so many different sites that look like they are legitimate news sites, which they're not. And, and you can you can right. tell. I mean, like I said, I've been in the business long enough. I can kind of smell out a fake. But, you know, you realize now it's so hard for the for the individual out there to know. And they're you know, literally they're getting their news probably off their Facebook feed or they're getting it off their TikTok or an algorithm is driving it now. Not an editor who is pretty well versed in what's going on in the world. Absolutely. And these are really dangerous, particularly at local levels, um, where there are a lot of news deserts in different places. So it's very easy to buy a domain name that looks like it's local news and then pump inaccurate news into that. And then people start sharing that. Um, and in my experience, people don't really want to share inaccurate news. They really just don't know any better. So right. they're easily confused. Um, but then when you say, hey, did you know that that was false? They're like, oh, no, I don't want to be doing that. So we need to also, another piece is having a dialogue about what do we do when we see people sharing news that's inaccurate. Yeah, no, I, you know, I mean, it was, I had a lot of that during the pandemic. I mean, there were just people, I would post something mm -hmm. and then you would get people in the comment sections that would post, you know, things. And it's always funny. And I can tell you this just under my cartoons. I can tell where people literally get their news from by the tone of their comments. Hmm. It's it's just a weird thing. I mean, it's just can kind of tell them that a little bit. All right. So I buried the lead. Congratulations on now being the dean of journalism at Ole Miss. Um, you you come Thank from you. South Carolina. Very Car honored to be here. Yeah, we're glad okay. you're here. And uh, everybody I've talked to that's met you and is very excited about you being here. And that's good news. It's always kind of bad when you come here and everybody's like, man, I really hate that she's here. So that, that would be bad. <laughs> uh, but no, it's great. And you know, you've had a great career academically and been able to do a lot of cool things. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up here in Mississippi. Sure, yeah. So I've had um, a career that's been really interdisciplinary in nature, working with colleagues in other fields. Some are more closely related, like photojournalism. But I started out my academic career at Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York, which is known for a couple things. Rochester's known for Kodak, or what used to be big Kodak, now it's much smaller, but there's a lot of really great minds and imaging science that are there. Um, and it's also, RIT itself is known for computing um, and computer security. And it was kind of a, a scrappy, fun, sandbox-type place to work, and interdisciplinary collaboration was really encouraged. And so I took advantage of that. Um, and so I was able to partner with colleagues in cybersecurity and in computer science and in business. And partly that's how I got involved in the deep fake, which is where we're, we're doing some of the background and engineering research there. Um, but that, So that was a great place to be, but journalism was never going to be one of the main programs at RIT, of course, because of their portfolio. So the University of South Carolina gave me an opportunity to kind of grow into the space and lean more into the journalism side. And doing it here in Mississippi is even a, a larger opportunity to do that in the school and to really build on this wonderful legacy of excellence in journalism that we're here already. And my vision for this is to just really highlight that and show that how journalism and our integrated marketing communications program, which is quite large, um, it's how we're really central to problem solving. People so often see journalism and communication as something that happens after a problem has been solved, and you just go tell the audiences this what's happened after you've already figured out what the problem is and how to solve it. And that's not quite how I see it. I, th I think that journalism and communication fields are really important. We need to be involved from the very beginning to understand what a community needs and how they want to get their information. 
I love uh, your vision is to prepare students to meet the challenges of evolving modern media and deal with ongoing technological and, and social changes. As somebody who started um, cartooning, I guess, around 1989, yeah, there's been a few changes. And it's almost it's <laughs> very, very hard to keep uh, pace of those changes a little bit. And I think that's a big part, big part of what you're going to be teaching the students, isn't it? How to be resilient and how to be able to change. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, there's a lot of people that have had different twists in their careers, and we need to prepare students for that. And I think one of the best things we can do is create a safe space for them to fail and try new things here. Um, The journalism that we're preparing them for today might look different in 10 years. It probably will. So do we have, are we equipping them with the skill set to be able to manage change and how to really thrive in those types of environments? I I do. I will say this about Ole Miss. I mean, great student paper, great student radio station, great student television really prepares. Folks literally leave um, the TV, you know, doing TV, and they go to bigger markets than a lot of students normally go to. I mean, there's a lot of great things going on there, but you're you're kind of expanding that out a little bit. I know um, I ran into Joe Stranger, who's the chairman, the founder of Edge Theory, and I know that you're going to be doing some work with them, too. Explain that relationship, because I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I'm particularly excited about this opportunity. So Edge Theory, they do narrative intelligence. And so what they're looking at, what I like about them is they do a lot of AI work, um, but they're interested in the storytelling behind it. So a lot of products or companies like Edge Theory, they kind of gravitate towards the hard sciences and computer science. But what they know is that you still need a human involved in order to tell the story and in order to hit that audience and also even to ask the right questions. And that's a really key thing, too. So we're excited to um, have them actually be on campus this week doing an information session with students and showing them how they can put these skills and what they're already doing and how they can see careers play out in many, many different fields. Um, But we're looking to, you know, employ our journalism students to help learn investigative skills by using some of their software. Um, And then also they can do some kind of market listening and and pushing out certain messages for communities, too. And again, we're just so excited because we think this completes the narrative of where we are extended into the future, building on what we're already really good at. One of the things, obviously, you mentioned IMC, Integrated Marketing Communication, which I think is a degree it's incredibly important. I was – I kind of joked I was the first IMC student because I started out in communications and graduated with a marketing degree. So I kind of did it back way back when. But it's so important now because now everybody has the ability to tell their stories, and a lot of companies are doing that now, and they're producing really high, glossy, uh, very well professionally done content. Uh, But they need storytellers, and you need to create storytellers, and that's what you're doing, right? Absolutely. And and one thing that's kind of come as we've seen local dues kind of shrink and less jobs overall there – some organizations are hiring their own journalism students, their own storytellers to do it. So, for example, we've seen a lot of growth in sports teams hiring people in integrated marketing and in journalism to tell the stories and connect with fans in a way that maybe the local news used to do but doesn't do or doesn't have the bandwidth to do so much anymore. Talk about the changes, like I said, you've seen in in your career. And, of course, you went from up north to down south. Congratulations. You were South Carolina before. And uh, did really well there, by the way. Congratulations. You got South Carolina's mm-hmm. Educational Foundation Research Award for Professional Schools. That's uh, one of the university's mm-hmm. highest honors. So you did very well on that. When this opportunity opened up, what what was it that drew you to Ole Miss and what drew you to Mississippi? I think that the sense of place um, and the sense of commitment to 
this long form storytelling in the South. So even though you look at it, it looks like I have Northern roots, my family is actually from the South. All, all the generations are in the Yankee cousins. So I feel some affinity to this is the culture that I grew up with, not necessarily in Mississippi, but it's, um, I feel real passionate about that. And I think that the South is really misunderstood. Um, and so often people are speaking for us or um, attributing certain characteristics to us with and we can do a better job telling that story ourselves. And I think that that's what I want to do is we want to educate students here to go take on the world and not just tell narratives from the South, even though that's where they're from. But we can speak for ourselves. Yeah, be really careful with that, because I remember when I moved here, uh, my first speech, I said it was like a group of literary. It was a literary group of, of ladies. And I probably average age was maybe 100. But anyway, they were they were nice and they were very kind. And I said, I want to thank you guys for having me here. And it was literally like I had cut wind or something and they all just kind of looked at me one of them raised her hand she said you ain't from around here are you boy and i said no ma'am i'm from atlanta and she said just as i thought you're a yankee so you got to be careful with the whole (laughs) kind of you know on that on on your roots thing but uh i i think you're going to enjoy it probably as much as everybody i have it's just a fantastic place and i think Ole miss is a great place to do it because it seems like you know a couple weeks ago i got to speak at the conference of front at the front porch in plain air. And, you know, the big thing was it was about storytelling. And I think that honestly, that's what we do in here in Mississippi as well as anything. And that's our superpower. And, you know, add to it, I think at Ole Miss, you you definitely learn how to make connections and so forth. And I think that's a big part of getting a story out there is people need to know you, they need to trust you and so forth. Right. And I think that's also, you asked about one of the changes there is I think that in, when I was going through journalism school, um, it was very much get the story up. And we know that we can't just stop with posting and writing the story, that right. now it's connecting with the audience, disseminating it. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have. But students are much more social in different ways than, than we were. <laughs> um, and so, you know, they, are, I think, are better prepared to figure out how a story grows and how it can multiply and be amplified in really positive ways. Um, so we're really excited about that future. Yeah, definitely. I, you're right, because I think, you know, I'll post a cartoon and then it's about engaging people in the comments section after that. So, yeah, you're right. right. It's like it's, everything's now three-dimensional instead of just two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Right. That. Definitely. So a little bit. Well, good. We're, we're going to continue this conversation a little bit. I was just going to – we got a couple minutes before the break. But like I said, we're right now – I think we're kind of literally at the cusp of going from old school to new school. I think we're at the, making that change point. You come in. You've been here since July. Obviously, you're going to do the, the lay of the land. Where do you foresee journalism training, uh, how, how it's going to change in the next, I don't know, five years and then into the future? What are some of the things you think are, that journalists are going to have to learn and have to become better at? And if we need to, we can go on to this on the other side of the break. Sure. I think one of the number one things, they need to have a deeper understanding of technology. Um, one of the things that we found in the deep fake detection research we've been doing, so we're trying to build a deep fake detection tool specifically for journalists. So they, are, they can use it in their workflow. Um, and it's something that they use all the time and understand how to use it. And so in trying to develop this, we've spoken with journalists, visited newsroom, asked them how they verify things, what are the normal processes. And they're pretty basic. They're doing it all. But when you ask them about technology, they kind of freeze up. And even when we spoke to tech beat reporters, some of the national news organizations and ones based in D.C. and New York City, is is that the depth of knowledge of the tech reporters wasn't as good as we thought it was going to be. Um, and I think this is critical. Not everyone needs to be knowledge of it, but journalists are really, they inform the public about what technology is and, you know, what's happening to their privacy and their data. So if journalists don't understand that well, 
then our audience isn't going to understand that very well either. So I think we need to do some more topical education as it relates to tech. I know. It kind of reminds me of every time there's a congressional hearing about technology, <laughs> you know, and those poor, poor right. senators and congressmen <laughs> are looking and going, huh? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. wait a minute. Oh, I definitely, I'm, I'm right there with it because it, you know, then on top of it, you add to the fact that newsrooms have been cut and there's not many people left and they're doing 17 different jobs and so forth too. And so that's really easy. So, and I got to tell you, Andrew, I, I was watching a TikTok the other day of an impersonator and they were doing deep fakes on the faces of this guy the whole time he was doing the impersonations and they would morph into the person who he was talking to. And it was scary. And it was so well done. And I mean, we're at the point now, aren't we, where you literally can put together something that looks like you you could have, say, um, President Biden sitting there saying, you know, we're about ready to start bombing Russia, you know, and it would look just like him and sound just like him. And that could cause the stock market to crash. That could cause, you know, us to, you know, <laughs> literally panic. So, I mean, that's these are the things that we're facing now, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah, the technology is there. Um, and there's some great examples out there already about how good they are. Um, a lot of those entertainment ones you've mentioned are the production quality is even better on those. Yeah. But for average people, it's getting easier to create a deep fake. Oh, that's see, that's where it gets scary right there is when just average right. folks can do it on that. Tell us a little bit. I mean, you obviously talked about your origins of being interested in deep fakes. When did deep fakes really start becoming convincing and really start becoming a thing really that we should worry about? I mean, it's kind of cool when you can see Luke Skywalker pop up and save Baby Yoda. You know, that's kind of neat um, when you see the deep fakes like that. But when did it really honestly become a thing? Sure. So some of the early deep fakes examples are on Reddit, um, and they were actually done in pornography. They became ways to kind of stalk and control women. Um, and that's where they were first started. And some people said they didn't get a lot of traction there because it was deemed as kind of deviant behavior at that point and used in these very specific contexts. Um, but increasingly, we've seen more and more examples of it. One of the most popular examples of a deep fake that was done kind of as a public service announcement is the comedian Jordan Peele and President Obama. Yeah. And what makes that one really compelling is Jordan Peele does a really good Obama impression. So that one is actually Jordan Peele's voice, but he's using President Obama to say things that he actually didn't say. Um and then some the war in Ukraine and Russia, we're seeing some examples coming out of that as well that are potentially really scary. So there's one of um, President Zelensky of Ukraine telling his troops to surrender. Fortunately, in that case, it's a really bad deep fake that it looks kind of like a two-dimensional head on a body. Yeah. Um, so it's not particularly convincing. But one thing I'd like to stress about deep fakes is even bad deep fakes can be really effective because if you're thinking about grainy video coming from, you know, war zones or something, you wouldn't expect it to have the polished production qualities that you might of one of a famous actor appearing in movies who didn't actually appear in. What? Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just but saying, I mean, and, and too, when you're coming into something like that, a lot of times we see what we want to see to begin with, and then it makes it pretty easy to believe what you're seeing. Right. And that's why journalists, you know, they're, they have expertise and they have their own sources and all the journalists we've spoke to would never just rely on a single tool to figure out if something's been faked or not. Yeah. To figure out who's been sharing it and use their kind of contextual knowledge of their beat to figure out, is this even likely that this person would be saying this thing? Why would they do this? Right. Right. How can we detect that? I mean, and I know, like I said, there is probably software and technology and so forth, but just as an average consumer, what can we do to help say, oh, no, no, this isn't right? 
Right. I think a couple of things is some of the, the bad deep fakes, which we like to call Jeep fake, cheap fakes that are not real technically sophisticated. Something's off about it. So some of the early ones, for example, people didn't blink. So really look at the facial features yeah. of somebody. You know, are, are they wrinkling as you would expect them to? Do their eyes blink? Um, do their movements seem coordinated? Maybe it seems pixelated in a funny way. Those can still be good clues to check on something. Um, but then also, if you were not sure about something, you could go, I would do a Google search and see who's sharing this video, who else is talking about it. Um, another thing you can do if you get something you're not sure about is always look to see when it was shared, because sometimes there's just misinformation shared that's an old photograph from five years ago that's being passed off as something that happened yesterday. Um, but all of those contextual clues are there. But then also go to the experts. Um so, for example, I'm concerned about deepfakes in a local context. I mean, national contexts are very interesting, and you think about wars and very big things. But if you're really an anarchist and trying to cause havoc, you're going to go to a weak point. You could go to a small local newsroom that doesn't have a lot of a lot of employees, even. Um, and so, you know, it could be very very bad for the community to have the mayor manipulated, right? Or a local business owner doing or saying something they shouldn't. So, always, if you have questions, call your Check your sources, you know, call the journalists in the area and see what they think about it. I know. I, I was like I mentioned with Margaret, I guess, earlier about Twitter and the whole verification blow up now where you can buy verification or maybe with you. I forgot. That's just kind of where I am today with the show. But <laughs> the point is, it is scary because even the, the little things that you you know see online where you're like, oh, no, that is actually an airline that I'm about to give my credit card number with has gone away. So like I said, it, it's right. kind of a it's like the Wild West out there. and We need to be careful. It is. And we also need some anchors, realistically, right? And I think that's what's so hard about Twitter now is I think people, you know, they thought they had it figured out or they had their followers on there. But with people changing their names and, you know, hard to tell what a parody account is not, we've lost some of those anchors. And, and that's my concern, too, with the loss of journalism communities is that, you know, people that we traditionally went to to trust, if they're not there anymore, what do we do? Who are we going to? Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I've enjoyed the conversation, and good luck at Ole Miss. I can't wait to uh, see all the the great things that you're able to do up there because I think it's going to be a lot of fun for you and for the students. Oh, thank you so much, and thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. You're listening to Now You're Talking on right here on MPB Think Radio, and it is a production of, of course, MPB Think Radio. And I want to thank our guests, Margaret Sullivan and Dr. Andrea Hickerson, for joining us. If you'd like to hear this show again or any past episodes, you can listen on your podcast or your favorite podcast app or on your MPB public media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio. It's produced by the amazing, incredible Jermaine Flood. Join us next week at 10 a.m. for another great conversation with the one and only Rob J. Hey, you're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.